next stop, the Twilight Zone. Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is from case number 0336 of the investigative case files of the Chief Brickstone and Family Charitable Foundation. Our episode today is titled, Finding Old Shaky Buried in a Glacier with 52 MIAs on Board. And I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the Foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you're hearing this preview of No Home for Heroes on your YouTube or audio burst, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast or streaming platform you prefer. Well, our questions today begin with, what do atomic bombs, missing jewels, a Hollywood star, a politician's relative, and a ghost's ID card have in common? (laughs) Stay tuned while we tell you about one of the most incredible cases we have ever investigated. An airplane buried in a glacier for over 60 years with 52 missing servicemen on board and enough mysteries to fill an entire novel. All of us here at the Foundation want to dedicate this episode to just one loyal listener. She was born at the exact moment that old Shaky crashed in 1952 with 52 men on board exactly 3,552 miles from her family home. Strange coincidence? Perhaps. For those of you who believe in such things, today's episode of History's Military Mysteries will be chock full of odd coincidence. Fair warning, today's story is just too epic to be told in one podcast. It should probably be a book or at least a two-hour movie. For starters, the case involved the potential recovery of 52 American heroes listed as missing in action, the largest single recovery case of MIAs we have ever been involved in. And rarely do we investigate one of history's military mysteries that contains so many bizarre coincidences and odd head-scratchers that we have to number them just to keep all the strange facts straight. But today's part one of our two-part episode of No Home for Heroes is perhaps our all-time winner in the Twilight Zone category. So, conjure up old Rod Serling and let's head off into that world between sight and sound. We're going to fill your head with so many strange occurrences that you will think you have just entered the Twilight Zone. On board, Old Shaky, cruising at about 9,000 feet across Alaska's vast wasteland. Aircraft number 51-1107 took off from McCord Air Force Base in Tacoma, Washington at 1530 hours, that's about 3.30 p.m., for a projected 7-hour and 3-minute flight to Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage, Alaska. 
The flight was designated flight number D39-22, Delta 39-22, and it carried 52 men, mostly Air Force and Army personnel, but one from the Marine Corps and one serviceman from the Navy. The estimated time of arrival in Anchorage was 22.33 hours. That's all about 10.33 p.m. in the evening. Sufficient fuel was on board for 11 hours and 30 minutes of flight time. An extra 2,402 pounds of fuel was added to the aircraft to compensate for extra power necessary due to forecasted icing conditions. The gross weight of the aircraft prior to takeoff was 174,746 pounds, which was just within a whisker of the C-124's maximum rated gross weight of 175,000 pounds. The aircraft commander, Captain Kenneth James Duval, received his pilot's rating on 12 April 1943, and he had logged 2,659 flight hours as a pilot. The co-pilot, also sometimes referred to as the first pilot, was Captain Alger Meredith Cheney. You know, you may have heard that last name before in American modern history. Captain Cheney received his pilot's rating on 20 May 1943 and had logged 3,492 flight hours as a pilot. The co-pilot and the pilot were very experienced. The weather for the flight is described in this official record that was filed after the crash. There was about 10 miles of visibility. Icing level at 1,000 feet at Middleton Island en route was, well, let's say a little bit sketchy. Pilot reports from the other aircraft in the vicinity indicated moderate to severe icing and turbulence. The weather cross-section forecast of 30-knot winds up to 9,000 feet between Middleton and Elmendorf. Pilot reports from this area, however, indicated that 65 to 80 mile per hour winds. However, this information was not then available to the pilot of Old Shaky. In fact, a C-47 southbound into Elmendorf at approximately the same time reported a ground speed of 68 knots for the wind. The key item to note in this description of the weather along Aircraft 51-1107's flight path is that 65 to 80 knot winds were noted by other aircraft, but that information was apparently not available to Captain Duval on board Old Shaky. There's no indication in the records that Aircraft 1107 was equipped with radar, and there's evidence that Captain Duval was not flying on instruments only. The C-124A, known as a Globemaster, was the largest cargo plane in the American Air Fleet at the time. It was used extensively to transport nuclear weapons and designed to transport a tank, bulldozer, or to up to 200 soldiers. The United States Air Force Strategic Air Command, or SAC, was the initial operator of the C-124 Globemaster. There were 50 in service from 1950 through 1962. Their primary duty, as we said, was to transport nuclear weapons between air bases and to provide airlift of SAC personnel and equipment during exercises and overseas deployments. This period of time when we lost Old Shaky was during the Korean War. 
While other aircraft in the United States Air Force were often affectionately given individual names complete with nose art, the C-24s at the time were all named Old Shaky because of the noise and vibration from the four huge Pratt & Whitney R-4360 piston engines that produced 3,800 horsepower. At 2150 hours, well, let's see, 2150 sounds like about 950, the flight reported that it was just east of Middleton Island in the Gulf of Alaska, south of Prince William Sound, and it was flying at 9,000 feet. This was the last confirmed contact from Old Shaky. She never arrived at Elmendorf. A search for aircraft 1107 was delayed by very bad weather, which continued for three days after the aircraft failed to arrive at Elmendorf Air Force Base. On 25 November 1952, 32 military planes began to scour the area along the flight path, and four Coast Guard vessels searched Prince William Sound. The search was hampered by reports of wreckage spotted in the water offshore and the captain of a Northwest Orient Airlines passenger plane who stated that he picked up a scratchy radio signal on the distress channel that said, quote, As long as we have to land, we might as well land here, end quote. Well, these all became red herrings. None of these reports later proved to be accurate. A member of the Fairbanks Civil Air Patrol, Lieutenant Terrace Moore, who was ironically the president of the University of Alaska, and Lieutenant Thomas Sullivan of the 10th Air Rescue Squadron first spotted the tail section of Aircraft 1107 sticking out of the snow on Mount Gannett six days after it was reported lost. Six days after its loss. They landed their Piper Super Cub and spent several hours on the ice confirming that the wreckage was that of the missing C-124A. Quote, one fact is obvious from observations, Sullivan and Moore wrote in their reports. The aircraft is scattered over at least two acres and covered by eight feet of fresh powder snow, end quote. After returning from the site, Lieutenant Moore stated that the plane was, quote, obviously was flying at full speed, end quote, when it struck Mount Gannett, the elevation of which is 9,100 feet. Remember, that Captain Duval reported that he was flying at 9,000 feet. The airplane appeared to have slid down the cliffs and exploded, throwing wreckage across several acres. At the time it was found, the tail was intact enough for identification. However, the wreck quickly sank deeper into the glacier ice. A search and rescue team was organized on 29 November, a week after the crash, and anchored at the base of the glacier on Harrison Fjord. Hindered by avalanche conditions and poor weather for several days, they established a base camp at 5,500 feet, which was eight miles, eight miles from the tail section at the crash site. Despite 70 mile per hour winds, helicopters reportedly flew beyond their safe operating altitude to resupply the search and rescue team. Men suffered from frostbite, and rations ran low while snowfall trapped men in their sleeping bags as the tent sides collapsed, obliging each other to dig the other members out. On 9 December 1952, 
the searchers finally reached the tail section in blizzard conditions. Finding no Finding no trace of survivors or additional wreckage, they returned to base camp. Quote, on our way up, we had carefully set out the trail markers, Captain William Hackett, an Army mountain climber who was part of the team, told the Anchorage Daily Times. They were barely discernible when we went down this afternoon, being buried in about three feet of snow, end quote. Further recovery activity was called off, and ultimately, the passengers and crew all 52, were officially declared dead by the Department of Defense. The official cause of the crash was determined to be navigational error. Well, remember, the aircraft was found approximately 30 miles off course, with secondary factors including weather and radio difficulties. It was suspected that the high-velocity crosswinds reported by other pilots in the area pushed aircraft 1107 significantly off course and into an area where the mountains were higher than the planned altitude of their flight. And there, buried in the snow and ice on Colony Glacier, sat the remains of Old Shaky and 52 lost souls. It sat there for almost 60 years until the phone rang at the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command in Honolulu, Hawaii, and there was no one there to answer it when the phone rang but me. Shortly after 8 o'clock on 13 June 2012, an Air Force Lieutenant Colonel at Elmendorf Air Force Base called me to report their discovery of a possible crash site. Members of the Alaska National Guard found an apparent crash site four days before near Mount Gannett on Colony Glacier, about 30 miles east-northeast of Elmendorf Air Force Base, right outside Anchorage, Alaska. Members of the Alaska National Guard found debris, which was primarily personal effects, specifically identified as a dog tag for Captain Kenneth J. Duvall. They also found a leather flight log, two packs of Camel cigarettes, and an aircraft access cover. And a member of the Alaska National Guard reported what he thought he saw as human remains. Within minutes, I correlated Captain Duvall's dog tags to a missing in action report, an unresolved casualty listed in the Intelligence Directorate records under JPAC incident number 24. This incident number is available through public record. Even more significant, Captain Duvall was the pilot of Aircraft 1107 when it crashed on 22 November 1952. All information obtained to this point indicated that none of the casualties were recovered, and therefore all 52 individuals on board were officially listed as unresolved. The location of the crash site on Colony Glacier was determined to be approximately 14 miles from where the plane was reported originally to have crashed. I requested that the Air Force issue what's known as a temporary flight restriction order to prevent access to the area by wreck hunters, curiosity seekers, hikers, etc. The Air Force launched a helicopter mission to the site during the afternoon of 13 June 2012, which was equipped with a photographer and trained mountaineering personnel. I stressed repeatedly to Elmendorf the necessity that the site be treated like a crime scene, 
and disturb nothing if at all possible. I was able to also determine the following during my initial investigation. Two Alaska Army National Guard UH-60 helicopters transported an assessment team to the C-124 debris field on Colony Glacier. The only personnel permitted on the ice were four glacier-trained para-jumpers, known in military parlance as PJs. The debris site was slightly offset from the center of the glacier in a rocky, dark-colored field that looked vaguely like the surface of the moon. The total visible extent of the surface debris was roughly 800 by 200 meters, with varying conditions and concentrations throughout the field. The site was located one-fourth to one-half mile from the edge of the glacier, and the edge falls off precipitously into a lake far below. From the air, there was little to indicate the area contained aircraft wreckage other than the remnants of a life raft and other yellow material. The presence of human remains was confirmed, mostly bone and bone fragments, though there were areas containing boots and uniforms that could possibly indicate the presence of additional remains. Material debris was identifiable as aviation-specific, including cockpit items. While there were larger items like tires, most items were relatively small and in very rough condition after nearly 60 years in the ice. Some debris material was actually observed in crevices in the glacier. A military ID card was recovered from the debris field, and it was recovered simply to prevent it from being blown away. This plastic ID card would lead to the very first mystery in this case investigation. The glacier conditions were variable. Some sections of the field were relatively safe. A small non-glacier trained recovery team might be able to work in a limited area under the control of glacier qualified supervision. Other areas required direct supervision and additional safety measures to ensure appropriate risk level. Weather conditions were expected to determine the ability to safely operate on the glacier. The current conditions at that time were favorable due to a lack of snow cover, which allowed visual inspection of the ice. However, any significant snowfall would obscure cracks and crevices and greatly raise operational risk. After losing 52, no one wanted, wanted to lose a single other person. While the first snows in the area were not usually expected for three months, it was always possible in this area that this could occur at any time and I determined that speed was of the essence to take advantage of what at the time were considered good conditions. Access to the site on the glacier was considered difficult, and likely only to be accomplished by helicopter. The temporary flight restriction order the Air Force put in place was a two-mile radius from the center of the visible field up to 5,000 feet. There was some indication that local citizens were already aware of the crash, and had attempted helicopter flyovers and perhaps even landings nearby. The dog tag of Captain Duvall, a leather-bound flight log, military paper orders were found in remarkable condition and could be read. Well, they were all kind of expected to be present at Old Shaky's crash site. But then, the first of history's military mysteries in this case jumped out of the twilight zone and landed on my desk. 
a military ID card belonging to Private Gene Reef found at the site of the subject crash reported by Elmendorf Air Force Base. The only problem was that Private Reef was not listed as being on Old Shaky. He was not a member of the crew, and he was not a passenger. In fact, Private Reef was alive over 50 years after the crash. <laughs> In military parlance, this was a whiskey tango foxtrot moment. It would prove to be the first of many. Wow. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. I can't wait to dive into part two of Finding Old Shaky just to see how the story ends. Well, <laughs> I already know how it ends, but trust me, we have just begun our trip into the Twilight Zone in this case. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes. Please subscribe for free to Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts so that you'll always be notified when a new episode is ready. We will post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action every Saturday just for you. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation, dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments. And a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. You sure don't want to miss our next episode on No Home for Heroes with the exciting conclusion of Part 2, Finding Old Shaky Buried in a Glacier with 52 MIAs aboard. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no hero, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them.